In their own words, is supported in part by the Penn State School of Music, the Penn State Office of Educational Equity, the Flower Box, and viewers and listeners like you. Thank you. You don't have American music without black music. Impossible. You know, before America was actually America, <laughs> enslaved Africans were making music over here. And so I think that I love the canon. I do not think we need to blow the canon up, but I do think there are things that are missing from the canon. Mm. And we need to take the time to make sure that they have their proper place. Welcome to the In Their Own Words podcast. Interviews and conversations with people from the African diaspora regarding their impact on American music. You just heard from Dante Ford, a talented and gifted rising voice in the field of music, music education, and music ministry. He spoke with Dr. Tony Leach in February of 2023 during the African American Music Festival at Penn State. Greetings all. Today I'd like to introduce to you Dr. Dante Ford, who is a faculty member at Wheaton College. He is the associate director of the chapel and an assistant professor in their school of music. More important to me, he is an alum of the Penn State School of Music and a native of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Dante, thank you for these moments that we're going to interact with each other as we talk about aspects of your journey in music and life and uh, what do you think is yet to come as we consider the realm of possibility. So let's begin by talking about portions of your formative years in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, when you think about your early musical encounters. Yes, sir. Thank you for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to share with you. Um, I'm a product of the Black Church. Um, I started a, somewhere around the age of six or seven playing drums in church. We were, uh, my family was attending a small Pentecostal church. My mother was the uh, church musician. She was the organist and they didn't have a drum set, and eventually they bought one, and it was a red TKO percussion drum set. I'll never forget. And like every other kid, you see a drum set, you go crazy. All of us want to bang on it and play on it, and they're like, stay away from the drums. And apparently, I nagged my mother incessantly, let me play, let me play, let me play. And they're like, no, no, no. And I guess one Sunday, for whatever reason, just about all of the kids were downstairs. It must have been either children's church or something, but I was upstairs with my mom. We were having afternoon service, and I kept bugging her. She said, just go ahead. And I got on the drums in the middle of the church and started playing and have been playing ever since. That would be the sort of my earliest encounter with music. My uncle is a drummer. Don't remember watching him much, but I watched other people play drums throughout the church. Because my mother was a... Um, organist and pianist, she tried to have me do piano lessons when I was really young, but I don't really remember much. <laughs> so it didn't really take, because I, clearly I was interested in doing something else. So that would be sort of my first encounter um, with music. So in elementary school, you know, the call came out for band. At the time, I decided I wanted to play saxophone. That didn't last long. That was like maybe a couple of months. Finally, I said, well, I already play drums, so let me just go ahead and play drums in the band. So did that for a while. And then I would say about, it must have been the end of my seventh grade year in junior high school, 
for whatever reason, I got bored playing percussion and got bored playing drums. So I asked my band director, I said, hey, is there an instrument we don't have in the band? Can I just learn something? He said, yeah, we don't have a tuba player. I said, oh, okay, cool. And he gave me one to take home for the summer to learn. And I came back and played tuba for the eighth grade year. Um, the school system was getting ready to change to this weird block system and cut all the arts. And so my parents intervened and that's how I ended up at Girard Academic Music Program. Um, applied there. Tuba players were scarce. So that, you know, got in as a as a tuba player and started there and then sort of the rest is history. Did all city band and orchestra, sang in a concert choir, you know, all that stuff. Played in musicals and because of performing arts school, so we did musicals every year and, you know, did those things. Um, I guess I'll backstep and say that probably before getting to high school, in fact, how I got connected with the high school I ended up going to was through the Kimmel Center. I did the Kimmel Center Youth Jazz Ensemble, and I played drums for them, and Mark Johnson was the director. And when our, the school I was going to cut their programs, my mom said, hey, we need a school to go to to try for music, and he recommended Gap. And then that's how I got there. And so Mark Johnson was also pivotal because he allowed me to transition from playing drums to playing tuba, which was the trombone parts in the jazz band anyway. So he always allowed me to participate in made room there. And then that's how I got to GAMP. You know, went through high school doing as much music as I could possibly do. Started playing um, trombone for the jazz band and then eventually became the pianist for the, for the jazz combo. We had a traveling jazz combo that would do stuff. Um, while I was in high school, my dad started his church, and maybe the first six months I still played drums and then finally switched over to organ, about, so that's about 2007. And so that's sort of kind of really what propelled me into piano and organ stuff. So it's pretty hilarious because it didn't stick at first, but eventually I made my way there. And then here we are at Penn State um, with majoring in tuba, did a BA in music, concentration in tuba, studied as a... Um, Tuba major in Velvet Brown Studio, which was one of the best experiences. Although, you know, I didn't always do what I was supposed to do, but you know, <laughs> we, we join the it. crowd. <laughs> <laughs> we made it out. Um, we made it out alive. So, yep. Okay. So you didn't come to piano quickly nor easily, and it seems like once you finally made that transition to the organ, that that became primary. But then there's this tuba that, on one hand, still is opening doors for you yep. musically, but at the same time, serves a different function in your music making. Yes. At that time in your life. Yes. It was, and it was, it was always interesting because I always enjoyed playing tuba, and so I had a lot of fun. But I think at the, as I sort of reflect back on, on the time, I think I was still in a mode of musical discovery at the same time. And so trying to figure out what I really wanted to do. Like, I knew walking in the door, I wanted to be a conductor. And I, and I fell in love with conducting from playing in the pit bands, mm -hmm. the pit orchestras from high school. Mm -hmm. So I kind of knew that, but figured it would be instrumental conducting because that's what I was doing. And, and then, you know, came to Essence of Joy rehearsal, and then I got pulled into choral land and have been there ever since. And, you know, even through the rest of my collegiate journey, grad school and everything like that, I still took tuba lessons. So when I went to SMU and did my sacred music degree and stuff, I was still studying with the tuba professor who was Matt Good, who's the principal timpanist for Dallas Symphony Orchestra. He was the adjunct there. So I still was able to study with him 
didn't get to do as much um, in my doctoral degree at University of Arizona just because I was so busy doing other stuff with coursework. But I've always played it. You know, I took a church job while I was in Arizona, and they found out I played, and so I played a few. So, so like, I've been always able to keep playing. And even now when I look back, like, currently I have a private tuba student at Wheaton College. (laughs) So it's like I never anticipated I guess how much it was still carried, but I know I, I did know I enjoyed it, and I think I really enjoy it and appreciate it now more than ever, because it really is sort of just a fun thing to do. And music is enjoyable too, but like that's just like a sort of a guilty pleasure of mine to be able to play and to be able to work on the solos and try to find some chamber music opportunities to play play for. But I remember having a conversation with, with Brown. She was saying, "Well, you know, if you graduate with a degree here, like you should be able to teach." A student <laughs> like that, and I, it never dawned me. I was like, "Oh, well, I'll never teach a student because you know, you almost got rid of me because I didn't practice like I was supposed to." <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's a that's, I, a, <laughs> that's that's a through a through line, <laughs> right? So it was I never saw that, but you know, understood what you were saying. And so you know, and, and tried to listen, and I was always grateful to her because she did not have to keep me on as a student as a BA. We were only required two years, mm-hmm. but she didn't give up on me, and she allowed me to sort of go on a road of discovery to figure out what I liked. So by the time I got to my senior recital, it was just a really fun, enjoyable experience, and I got to do sort of a, a musical array of things, mm-hmm. which was so much fun for me, but sort of became a defining moment in my musical career to say, yeah, I like to do a lot of different things, and you know, I know they say you can't have your cake and eat it too, but I'm like, yeah, I'm going to try. <laughs> and so that's sort of how mm-hmm. that emerged. Philadelphia is known historically as a hotbed, a fertile place for creativity in music, all kinds of music. Uh, Philadelphia and uh, New York City and Boston, the first professional orchestras in the United States of America. And the Philadelphia Orchestra's reputation is as solid today as it was 100 years ago. But then we also know that there's a Philadelphia sound when it comes to popular styles in African-American music. And of course, we have a West Coast sound in black gospel music, and we have a DC sound, and there definitely is a Chicago and a Detroit thing going. All you have to do is hear 10 seconds, and you know, oh yeah, mm -hmm." Mm I can probably tell you who's at the organ, or who's at the piano, just because of how unique uh, the technique is Mm -hmm. for uh, the the regions of the United States. But my question is, when you think of your journey, Mm -hmm. and where you emerged, just because that's where your family lived, what are you carrying forward right now from aspects of that journey that is so eclectic? Oh, that's a really great question. So it's interesting, a couple years ago, you had me do a lecture on gospel music in Philadelphia and realizing how much I didn't know about the scene just because, I think in part because the churches that we went to were smaller independent Pentecostal churches, so they weren't in sort of the big the big circles. And Church of God in Christ is, you know, the largest, I'm almost certain it's the largest, it is. but certainly the largest black Pentecostal denomination. And one of the former senior bishops was in Philadelphia, R.T. Jones, well, O.T. Jones Sr. So like, 
there was a, a thriving scene, particularly in the Kojic church. And again, we operated ancillary to that because we were part of independent congregations. And so not knowing all of that or being a part of that, but being around it because mm-hmm. you still sang some of the things that you would hear in those congregations. When I think about what was distinctive of my upbringing, though, I think the improvisatory nature of devotional service, of praise and worship, like that is one of those things, the whole idea of hear it once and play it or learn it on the spot. So like when I'm in Wheaton, you know, and we have, we just recently hired a new chaplain who was a product of the Black Church, Black Baptist Church, but he is quick to jump in the song and it's nothing for me to just hop on the piano and start playing. Now, these days I don't as much as because I like to empower congregational and acapella singing. So it's just like fun. But it's like nothing to do that. Or, hey, I, I have a, I want to change. Can we add this song in there? Sure, no problem. Like that's just, that's the world in which I live. So we went to United Evangelistic Church was the church we were in. So I grew up in United Holy Church. I was born in that. But as I was reared in church and started playing drums, we were in United Evangelistic Church. And we had our headquarters church and the bishop's wife played organ. And to this day, my parents always joke at me and they say, I'm, I sound, I can sound just like her. But of course, you sound like the people you grew up listening and hear playing. So when I think about some of the, even the approaches to playing now, which I don't do as much anymore just because of I'm doing different things, sort of that sound is sort of still there or sort of the approaches to playing, um, you know, the congregational side of things, the, they were really big on hymns. And so like, I learned a lot of hymns, as I recall, there were a lot of hymns that, that they sang that were not typical for the average Pentecostal church. And come to find out she grew up Presbyterian. So she, as a musician, she heard all of that stuff. So it was just second nature for her to play the way that she played in it. So certain nuances, and it's interesting. So I'm like, oh, I heard her play this. And then I can go to the hymn. And I'm like, oh, well, it's kind of like basically that minus a few things or plus a few things. Mm-hmm. So those are some of those distinctive experiences I think that I still carry forward even as I'm doing music now. Um, some of the sounds and the ways we would sing some of the devotional pieces, you know, different regions sing different congregational and devotional songs slightly different. And so if I'm going to write an arrangement of something, I think of like uh, the Negro spiritual, is there anybody here who loves my Jesus? When I did an arrangement of that, it has some nuances from the way I heard it sung when I was coming up in church. And so I still sort of carry those experiences, just kind of, they just show up mm-hmm. <laughs> in anything that I do, just because it's just second, literally second nature at this point. Mm-hmm. I'm going to throw out some names and respond as you're able. Luther Vandross. Oh, man. It just, <laughs> you think about uh, just versatile, mm. just Absolutely versatile and can sing across the range. And no matter, as people make jokes like whether it was Big Luther or Skinny Luther, it all worked. <laughs> it all worked. Marian Anderson. Oh, pure genius. Trailblazer. Yeah, really became pivotal for me toward the end of undergrad and going into master's degrees to just mm-hmm. like realize, like, oh, yeah, she's like from my area. Yes. Because you hear a lot about her, but you just never, we never drew the connection. And again, wasn't somebody, you know, for right or for good or for not, didn't even talk about much in coming up through high school. So you sort of missed it until you started paying attention to what was happening. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Clara Ward. Oh. <laughs> again, another trailblazer. Like the epitome, one of the epitomes of like Philadelphia gospel music sound. And again, which I learned way after the fact. Mm-hmm. Although I always heard those names around. Mm-hmm. 
but didn't like when I was able to press in, I was like, oh, this is who Clara Ward and the Ward singer, like that's the reputation we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And even though this person is not a native of Philadelphia, he spent, he's probably now in his ooh, almost 15th year of being on faculty at uh, Temple University School of Music, Ronald Dilworth. Absolute leader in bringing sort of the sounds of the black church into the academy. Mm-hmm. It's like you can't go anywhere without <laughs> his piece. One of his, one of his pieces is, is going to show up uh, inevitably. And another one of those, at least for me, when I, I think his, when his, when dreams take flight that he has, mm-hmm. is a, one of the poems of probably Langston Hughes. Probably Langston Hughes. Yeah. And, but like the gospel idiom in this non sacred, th- like really helping to bridge that gap. It's, 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 it's amazing. A matter of fact, my youngest brother studied with him when he was mm. at Temple. Okay. So there was a connection, connection there. I've not yet met him, but we know people who know each other, so. You've recently finished your dissertation, <laughs> the University of Arizona in musicology. Mm-hmm. And uh, as I introduced you, in your academic appointment at Wheaton College, you have responsibilities in the chapel and also in the School of Music. Did you pursue this appointment because the environment, the, the requirements, what you're being paid to do, allowed you to bring many aspects of your journey forward in real time as opposed to I'm just going to teach musicology mm-hmm. or I'm just going to do pastoral work or counseling mm-hmm. or whatever. What impacted that decision? I knew um, coming to Penn State that I wanted to go to seminary at some point. I wanted to get an MDiv. Didn't know when that was going to happen. I just knew that. And I also, and of course, knew years ago that I was going to major in music when I got to undergrad, so that was no problem. And about midway through, realized too, though, but you know, I really would like to try to find something that's like music and theology for my master's degree. And especially because I turned the corner into choral conducting. Mm-hmm. And I knew that it would be almost impossible to go right into a master's in choral conducting having not sang in choir since I was in high school. So I knew there was just some limitations. I saw um, doing a couple of searches and stumbled across a sacred music degree and fell in love. I was like, this is it. At the time, I was went to SMU. At the time, you could only do either an organ, keyboard focus, or conducting. Perfect. I knew I had the church music experience to get accepted to a degree like that, you know, and I had to, sort of the theological chops to be able to do that. But that was sort of the embrace because it eventually really it dawned on me. It was like you know, I'm a church musician. Like I love this. I like this is something that is ingrained in who I am. And of course, growing up in the church I grew up in. Being a church musician wasn't necessarily a popular thing. It wasn't really the most positive thing because it was code for, oh, you don't have a real job. You just run around playing for funerals. Mm. And I, w- I had no concept for full-time ministry music with benefits. That was not a thing in our Pentecostal churches and really in most Pentecostal churches, especially because they were small. So it was just like, oh, you won't get a real job. And so, you know, anybody who has a real job can't just take off 10 o'clock Tuesday morning and play a funeral. <laughs> so that was sort of the... 
the sort of the moniker with that. And so I sort of resisted that a little bit. But then it dawned on me, like, but that doesn't have to be my story. And certainly not. And it won't be mine. And so to see that and to realize, like, you know, hey, here's sort of a way into the conducting that I, you know, to get into choral conducting, but in a way that also situates me in things that I really enjoy. So did the sacred music degree, stayed at SMU, did a master's, and then also was doing the MDiv. I think somewhere in undergrad, I had probably just accepted the fact that, okay, yeah, okay, I'll probably go get a doctorate. But I was thinking DMA. Had a conversation with my two sacred music professors, Dr. Hahn and Dr. Anderson. They did like a check-in with all the students. And he said, you know, it's okay to want to do a DMA, but you know, I would really encourage you to consider going to go get a PhD. Like we need more scholar practitioners. I think you have it. I was like, okay. And so I was like, well, I want to do church music, sacred music. There's not a lot, there's not a lot of programs out there. And at the time, Baylor was really the was like Baylor, Notre Dame. So I love Texas, wanted to stay there. So I thought oh, I'll go to Baylor. I wasn't rejected, but I also wasn't accepted because my GRE was two points too low. So I wasn't sure what I was going to do. Through those some of my sacred music connections, I was working with the um, the, the Hymn Society of Dallas. No, it's the Center for Congregational Song. Colleague of mine said, hey, we do these little uh, demos. Would you be willing to go to the University of Arizona to do a demo for them? For sure? I said, sure, why not? I go up there, we lead a hymn sing, do some stuff. I met the assistant director of core activities, Dr. Elizabeth Shower. That's who I was working with that weekend. Enjoyed my time with her. I was like, well, if it's not church music, because I was like, where else I'm going to apply? And I kind of realized, so Dr. Anderson, he's a musicologist. He did his degree at Duke. And I said, well, you know, ultimately, it's sort of kind of the same thing because my whole church music history, sacred music history, half of musicology is church music history because of the, you know, the nature of how church music worked. And I was like, well, there aren't many sacred music programs, so I guess I have to find another program. So the sort of the musicology was kind of like, sort of kind of default. I was like, eh, what else do I have? No problem. It's an interest of mine enough to want to pursue, and I had sort of ideas about how to be a scholar practitioner within that, so fine. Look up the program at University of Arizona. They happen to have one. I applied in the airport. Didn't really plan on going, because I was like, but you know, I said, like, I need a third school to apply to. I applied to Duke, applied to Baylor. I said, I need a third school. Didn't plan on going, but I was like, ah, let me see what happens. Never even met the musicology faculty. <laughs> Never, you know, just, but off of that one experience with that professor, Lo and behold, University of Arizona comes back and says, well, we're accepting you. I was like, oh, okay. So I went there and, and did that. Having been tangibly impacted, though, by the sacred music program at Perkins, fast forward, I, um, one of my friends sends me this job posting at Wheaton because he had recently met the former chaplain. They did something together. And I'm looking at it, and I was just like, oh, wow. This is awesome. <laughs> This is, I didn't expect because there aren't many sacred music programs. I'm like, all of those jobs are kind of taken up. So you kind of have to wait until, you know, somebody retires to get, to get one of those posts. And but what I found distinctive about the Wheaton job, which is to the point of your, one of the points of your question, is that it was both ministry and teaching. You know, any of the other sacred music positions, like at SMU, for instance, we have the sacred music program, but that person is not actually over chapel. We have a professor of worship who does that. So there was still sort of this di slight dichotomy in what happens there. But in this situation, it's like you get to be associate chaplain and 
be a professor. And I'm like, well, that's just like being a minister of music and, and on the inverse, especially if you had a church who had a school with it and you were running the church music program, uh, you running a music program for the local school. And so when I saw that, I was like, oh, this is like really intriguing to me because it allows me to bring everything that I'm involved in to the table. And then especially at a place like Wheaton where it's a very specialized environment too. So once you are there, there, there are opportunities to do some of the other stuff that you want to do just based off of the fact that we all help and share, sharing a load. Mm -hmm. But that was a game changer for me mm -hmm. to find a job. Um, and for me, not even out of a PhD yet, to find a job that allowed me to bring sort of the pastoral awareness and theological chops to the table, but as well as like be the musician that I naturally am and teach also along the lines of how to do um, faithful um, service in church music ministry and, and mm -hmm. think creatively about worship arts. So far, we have not said anything about Dante the composer, <laughs> the arranger. When you think of not only why you do what you do as a composer slash arranger, but how you do it and the circumstances that contribute to that part of you coming to the table. Please share. So in part, it was just hearing choirs like Essence of Joy. I'm like, man, I just want to write something. <laughs> it's impossible to be untransformed by Essence of Joy. It's just, and so I remember being captivated at listening to you do a warm-up sequence. I'm like, well, if they sing this for warm-ups, I mean, <laughs> it's like, when you get into the repertoire, like, what are you going to do? The video's on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, you know, I, I remember that being one of those moments. Also kind of knowing, too, that it was like, as I started growing and expanding circles, just realizing this is what we did. And, you know, it's one of those things like, you know, Dr. Wise and... Uh, and Roger Holland, and just to see, like, that's just what we kind of did. So it was like, okay, eventually, maybe I'll get there. Because oddly enough, I've always disliked, I mean, and still some, to some respect, disliked the, the process of composing and arranging because it ends up being really, really pedantic. And I have, sometimes I have very specific ideas. So it's like, I have to take the time to really, like, indicate all that stuff. And I'm just like, ugh. Okay. It could be sort of a... It's a sort of a love-hate relationship. So I never really thought I would get into it, but I think throughout undergrad did a few things. But I think my first real serious piece might have been the standing in the need of prayer. Mm -hmm. I think that was really it. I had a few things, like random things before then, but I think the standing in the need of prayer was the first one, and it just came out of a need. I was planning a concert um, and was like, I really want to do this. And I just really didn't like the versions that were out there. I said, I really don't like this. And I know what I'm looking for. I can't find it. So I guess I just need to write it. And that really is what prompted me to like sort of keep going. Mm -hmm. And I did that one. And then I think shortly thereafter is when I did the gospel one. Just again, another, that was more strict inspiration. It's like, I just want to write something. You know, I left the choir rehearsal that went really, really well. And just this sort of motive kind of came and I said, I want to write something, and I also want to write something slightly different. Mm. Um, you know, having familiarity with like gospel music and knowing it, you know, I was like, okay, but I want to do something just at, you know, reasonable difference, not different for the sake of just being different, but sort of add a different flair onto something that is, um, that happens all the time. And just so from there, just kind of kept going. And then I tell people all the time, I knew that I was getting somewhere. Um, because you see everything that I, you see everything that I do, and you've seen it from like its really infancy stages until now. 
So I told somebody, I said, well, I knew I was finally getting somewhere when Dr. Leach was like, I'm doing this. I said, oh, okay. And then I would like pay attention to what I was doing mm-hmm. there and just trying to figure out, okay. And then again, church stuff and wanting to write church music that really mattered and actually was accessible. You know, you get groups that they want to do a lot of stuff, but it's like you can't do it because for, you're limited. But like you could still write a really good piece for them and they sound, you know, sound more than capable of doing it. And so it sort of evolved with a mix of just needing to do it because there was something I, that was missing. Um, being inspired by composers like Art Nathaniel Dett, for instance, who was just like, I love his work. And then sort of this idea that Negro spirituals are just pivotal to who I am these days mm-hmm. and wanting to write those arrangements, but having to bring new flares and new takes on them. And also sometimes to say, hey, we also write more than just that. <laughs> so sort of the both and, and especially as we navigate the space too, where there are uh, an increasing awareness by music making institutions to say, hey, we need to change our repertoire, we need to diversify our repertoire and sing stuff. And don't get me wrong, I am all for groups singing gospel music. It is a viable part of our of America's contribution to gospel well to music as a whole. Um, but there are groups that probably have no business singing it because they don't possess the competencies at the moment to do it. But like black music is so expansive. So mm-hmm. the fact that we relegate black music to gospel, it's like, well that's a problem. No, just like it's problematic that we relegate all black composers to spirituals and gospel, right? But it's like trying to, to meet those needs and cover those balances so that, so that there is repertoire out there and you can hear new voices and new contributions to, to, to the genres. Mm-hmm. You are 30 years old or so. Yep. And uh, when you think of your peers, uh, some of the names of uh, people that will hopefully move forward with you in the next 20, 30 years as composers, as performers, Mm -hmm. as shakers and makers Mm -hmm. when it comes to all aspects of African-American music. When I entered in Penn State uh, in 2010, right? Yeah, 2010, Mm -hmm. uh, there were only a handful of Blacks uh, music students, but one of them was Keanu Williams. dear sister and dear friend, and, you know, we've stayed connected since. And, you know, I still, and I know she's going to fuss at me because I still owe her a song cycle. I told her I got it. But, <laughs> you know, just a stellar, stellar performer, stellar singer, and it's, it's just make it, making things happen. Um, later to that crew was added Eric Williamson. Mm-hmm. I met him first through United Soul Ensemble, and then he uh, was... I forgot what he was majoring in before, but he eventually turned the corner and majored in music. Mm-hmm. So all the three of us graduated together. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, um, early on in Penn State, Isaiah Thomas, whose father is a gospel music legend, um, he, he, we were also here together. So those are some of the names that I carry forward from um, Penn State. A good friend of mine, Rylan A. Harris, who is the... I think it's Minister of Worship and Arts at Ray of Hope, Christian Church in Georgia. He's another friend of mine who's writing great stuff and, as you know, is also writing Sunday morning music too. Mm -hmm. And I have the privilege of um, sort of being his primary transcriber for for his stuff. So anytime he does something and he's trying to get scores together, um, I'll usually work on those scores for him and transcribe stuff. Another name that comes to mind is Braxton Shelley. Mm -hmm. I met Braxton Shelley, Dr. Braxton Shelley, who's now working at Yale, Mm -hmm. Yale Institute of Sacred Music. 
Um, he's a friend of mine. Met him through the um, James Edmonton Church Music Academy at the Hampton University Ministers Conference. And um, just, you know, a pioneer, has a book on gospel music with Richard Smallwood. I mean, really taking great strides and really um, providing musicological content on gospel music, which is such a revolutionary and very much needed during these times. Also, my friend Rodney Walker, who just started a gospel, uh, choir in Philadelphia. So joining that emer those emerging voices of the gospel uh, music scene in, in Philadelphia, those would probably be some of my closest friends mm -hmm. that just everywhere um, I go. I have a few other, like, there's a composer, B.E. Boykin, Brittany Boykin. Yes, yes, yes. She is, yes. I was exposed to her work at Hampton, mm -hmm. again, um, for God So Loved the World. I think, I don't know if she calls it that or John 3.16 or both, but it's all, you know, same difference. Her work and the work of Marcus L.A. Garrett, I have sort of taken on as uh, when I was the Ethnic Music Resources and Repertoire Chair in Arizona when I was there for the Arizona's chapter of ACDA. Um, I wrote some reviews on their music, and, you know, I just, those are two colleagues out there who I think their music is just great, and they are just blossoming right now. They're, I mean, they're doing stuff all over the place. So, like, those are names. If you don't already know them, you definitely will know them in, like, even the next five years or so. I mean, they're, they're doing great work. Very good. Very good. What is your hope for aspects of American music, especially when we talk about African-American culture? As a musicologist, I, I mean, I just firmly believe that, you know, you don't have American music without black music. Impossible. The Negro spiritual stands as sort of the grandfather of them all. You know, before America was actually America, <laughs> like enslaved Africans were making music over here. Um, and so I think that, you know, that's what people all the time. I love the canon. Like, I, I have... I do not think we need to blow the cannon up, but I do think there are things that are missing from the cannon, mm. and we need to take the time to make sure that they have their proper place. And so trying to understand, um, create a holistic view of music, and particularly American music, that actually acknowledges the contributions of African Americans, Negro people, Black people, um, Native Americans as well, but that acknowledges that music is part of our contribution, distinct contribution to music history. Also, there's sort of that idealization that that is the only type of music that is really worth considering high art. It's just, I think, is extremely flawed. There are women that are there, there are composers of color that need to be there, and then the fact that our canon of music sometimes gets limited to just so-called high art music is also problematic. It needs to be expanded to say, hey, these are great things, but this other stuff as well, because especially as long as we continue to do symphonies and we know that Haydn and Beethoven are using popular folk tunes, Ode to Joy and other things like that as the foundational basis for their music, certainly we can look at other composers. And so as we emerge in these next couple of years to actually see a more holistic understanding of musicology, study of music, music education that includes this repertoire that expands black music besides just Negro spirituals and gospel music, but is not quick to forget that that exists and that it's important and is a part of it and to understand that there are compo black composers, composers of color who are creating all kinds of music and it all has a rightful place. And to sort of, you know, break down these false dichotomies of like high art and low art. Mm. You know, like there was a time, like we look at opera now as high art music, but it was a time when it was just very popular stuff. And I think if we forget that, we get so far removed and forget 
that, you know, opera itself was, you know, popular music at one point in time. And so to be able to sort of reshape how we think about the canon to, you know, provide opportunities to hear those music, that music in just a position, right? I think you can hear, you know, Bach, Beethoven, gospel, spirituals all in one concert, and it's totally fine and it's totally okay. We don't have to always have a specialized concert for one or the other. And so getting to that point where our music education, the repertories that we perform, right, become more standard instead mm -hmm. of always this, like, special affinity thing. I think that is the hope and the goal. And, you know, we can all just do our parts as best as we possibly can. But I think that would be big picture is to actually come one day and American music actually be American music. It'd be holistic. And the way we talk about music education curriculum is like holistic to the point where it's like, oh yeah, if we were to do a musical history, music history class by survey and do it by region. I think if I were to teach the class, it would be by region. Mm. And I would say in, in, in 1700s, Here's what's happening in Germany, here's what's happening in England, here's what's happening in America. And that's how we understand the whole of music history. Thank you, Dr. Ford, for the time that you have shared today. And uh, we look forward to what is yet to come from you as composer, arranger, pianist, organist, father, husband, all those fantastic things that make your life rich, meaningful, and engaging for all who encounter you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the In Their Own Words podcast. Interviews and conversations with people from the African diaspora regarding their impact on American music. Join us next time when we meet three classically trained musicians for an exhilarating music discussion, including the influence of gospel and pop music in their own lives. I remember when Rapper's Delight came out, and we had to, you didn't hear it on the radio, any station that I grew up with, but I don't even know how we found out about it, but, you know, went to the alternative bookstore and would dig through the stacks to find the American R&B and find these groups by mistake. Um, discovered people like Prince, not knowing who the heck he was, and Michael Jackson had cut through, so we, we did have the Jacksons and things like that, but, yeah, I mean, all these things, Mahalia was, kind of the only gospel singer that I was aware of. Mm. That talk features pianist composer Maria Thompson Corley, tenor Christian Say, and pianist educator Fred Dade. I'm Charles Duma. Thanks for listening. In Their Own Words is supported in part by the Penn State School of Music, the Penn State Office of Educational Equity, the Flower Box, and viewers and listeners like you. Thank you.